world is a beautiful but challenging place to live. And let's face it, life hits hard sometimes. So if you find your hopes and dreams and mental well-being needs a boost, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Welcome to Inspire Us with your host, Jay Paul Nadeau, a former hostage negotiator turned motivational speaker and acclaimed author of Take Control of Your Life. And now, here's your host, Jay Paul Nadeau. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of Inspire Us. Today, I have B.A. Crisp. Her real name is Angelina, but she goes by B.A. Crisp because that is her pen name, and she has a book that she's authored. This woman has lived quite the life. She was a foster child who was molested at the age of eight, raped at the age of 16, and who became an exotic dancer. But over and above everything that she went through, she started to knock on the door of government to get into place some changes in the human trafficking and sex industry laws. And she has accomplished a lot. I think you're going to find her story incredible. And I warn you, there is some language and the content is about the adult industry and also about human trafficking. So I am introducing you to B.A. Crisp. You'll find her story inspirational and she's going to inspire us. Welcome, B.A. Welcome to Inspire Us. It is so nice to have you on the show today. It is a wonderful opportunity to be here and I'm very happy you invited me. Thank you. Thank you. My purpose with Inspire Us is to get a number of people on with interesting stories who have gone through a lot and were able to get through it. And you are one of those people. Your background is quite interesting. And I know that it involves being in a foster home and it also involves being out on your own on the streets. And it also involves some other interesting areas. And you were able to come through that. Can you take us through your childhood and some of the experiences that you had? I can. So, so boy, it's kind of like asking me to climb on the proverbial couch. <laughs> with Dr. J, so, J. Paul. So. You got it. You got it. Yep. I, but, I, I once played a doctor on, on TV, so it's all good. <laughs> so my childhood was unconventional during that period, to say the least. I grew up in a very rural environment in Ohio, and it was an environment back then where nobody got divorced, which is unlike today. And my parents were divorced. So that catapulted me into a series of foster homes, living with relatives, and then we wound up in in foster care. And while I was in foster care, I was then remanded to live with a man that I thought was my father, but who turned out, and I found this out years later, not to be my father at all. And I suffered, I did have the abuse, but not at his hands. I need to make that clear because he too was a victim in in that regard uh, because he thought he was my father. But there were other aspects of my life, whether I had a situation as a young lady, my my first situation was as a nine-year-old. So that I was in the hands of a male babysitter Mm. and it was 
child sexual abuse. Never told anyone, was threatened. It was the typical, if you tell anyone, they won't believe you and I'll hurt your brother and that kind of thing. So I remember his name, I remember everything. And I have, you know, I just, ooh, very, very painful and very confusing. I think that's a, and very shameful because when you're nine years old, you don't realize, you know, it's wrong. You just know that it's wrong and, and you're terrified. You're absolutely terrified. And, and the, in the physical pain and the emotional pain um, was extraordinary. And, you know, I remained pretty quiet about that for decades, um, I would say. And then of course, as I roll through life, I discover it as a young lady that I am, that this man is not my father. So here I am a teenager. I've got the hormonal fluctuations that we all go through during puberty and I early adolescence. And I learned that this man is not my father. So now I've got this whammy and we were never close anyway. So I would say I was pretty much left to my own devices as a child. There wasn't a lot of, here's a meal. Uh, here's a, yes, did they feed and clothe me? Of course they did, but it was very much, I was alone. I was isolated. I'm, I'm miles away from anywhere on this farm and I'm isolated and, you know, and there were other kids around and, but I really depended on myself to get where I needed to be. Um, if I ever, you know, if I didn't have to come home, I wouldn't, I was constantly tardy in school. Um, and then at, um, I had a, a, horrible event at 16, you know, it was a bullying event. Um, and I was accused of, of sleeping with a guy that I hadn't been with and he'd never touched me. And the, the worst of it was he allegedly had gonorrhea and that, and he told everyone he got it from me and, and it would, I'd never touched the guy. So that was very painful. I didn't know, I didn't have the sophistication to sift through that and, um, and to counter it with any logic and or defend myself. And what they usually say is he that protesteth, he or she that protesteth too much. And I was devastated. So I ran away. And, and that's when I had a very difficult time. I was living under at a picnic shelter on a beach and I would shower at the public shower. And, you know, I'd get by asking people for food. I knew some of the fishermen uh, who would go out on to Lake Erie and I'd ask them for help. And nobody bothered at that time and to say, oh, why is she out here alone? Why is she out here by herself? And, mm. and I was, yeah. And I, so I did meet a guy and he had a boat and, and he seemed charming and sophisticated by my simple standards, my provincial standards at the time. And and I left with him on the boat and I never made it back to that beach. So. Oh, and you were 16 when you met this guy. I was. Yeah. I was. And how, how much older was he uh, to you at the time? I would say at that time, he was probably 15, maybe 13 to 15 years older than I was. I, I, he may have been 30. I can't quite remember, but he was, he was old. He was definitely more advanced than I was in the world. Of course, um, and, and quite an age difference at 16. You're still sure. a child. You're still a young, right. you're just a teenager. Right, and I, I initially thought, oh, wow, this guy's great. He's, he's got stuff and he feeds me and he, and he bought me a dress and, 
and this is great. And, and then it became, Hey, I want you to enter this contest at a bar, a regular bar and not, not a strip club or anything. It was a regular bar. And I said, and I said, what kind of contest? And he said, well, it's a bikini contest. And I said, well, I, I don't, I'm, I don't have a, I don't have, I can't get into a bar. They won't let me in. He said, Oh no, I took care of that. He goes, we were, we got you a fake ID. And I don't know how he did it. Cause it wasn't my picture. It was some other lady's ID, but they mm. just never looked. And, and I remember I went into the bar and I was so scared and I thought, well, this is what grownups do. And I was plied with alcohol and I got so drunk that I fell down and when I didn't win the contest and I was just, I've never been that, that drunk at that age. And he, he was upset with me and, and, uh, and that's about, I, I remember a couple of pieces of that night, but it wasn't pretty. Mm. Um, and I remember waking up the next day and, and not having, you know, my clothes and being locked in a room and I couldn't go anywhere. And from there, it really, really went downhill. Would you, what you're describing almost sounds like a, a grooming uh, that this, uh, this man was, uh, was doing. What, would you have associated that with, with him grooming you for something? Not at that age, because okay. you don't understand that. And I think that's where people have a really difficult time is you know, I always hear people say, and I've, I've worked, I've actually worked as a psychiatric assessment specialist at a major metropolitan hospital outside of Cleveland. And, um, you know, and I've also worked with uh, human trafficking victims and federal agents who deal with, with human trafficking victims and their traffickers. So when I talk with people, they'll say, well, why can't they just leave? Why can't they just, you know, people who don't understand it, you know, if you're being abused, you walk away. Well, when you're young and dependent, or, or you don't even have to be young necessarily, if you're groomed and you don't understand that that is what is taking place, it is a very gradual process that you come to accept things that you would never accept. They, they become normal. They just be, that's your norm. That's your normal. I'm not saying it's right. It, it's def, it's egregious, but it's like a, and then you identify with your, your uh, perpetrator, you identify with them under Stockholm syndrome and you have Correct. a whole host of, of other things that you have to think about um, that you don't at that age. You just, you, you want, a, I wanted his approval. So, right. and he knew that and good groomers will play on your vulnerabilities. Yes. And this is what I was getting at. It sounded to me, and perhaps I didn't clear my question properly. It sounded like he was grooming you when you were 16, but you had no idea yeah. about that. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And that grooming process can involve being complimented, being taken places, being given gifts, and then at some point being asked to do something that is not within the normal scope of any kind of relationship, it ends up being something that you have to do for him. If and, you love and, me, you'll do this. Correct. Correct. And that is such a, such a dangerous thing these days is that a lot of that is going on with a, a lot of young people. And your background, you were sexually assaulted by a, a babysitter at the age of nine. Your 
parental figure, I guess, wasn't all that involved in your life, there were a lot of things that you ended up experiencing, I suppose, that led you to, to put it. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 terrible experiences. And you're right, the Stockholm syndrome. And I'm imagining that after all these experiences, you probably suffered from uh, post-traumatic stress for everything yeah. that you've gone through. I was diagnosed. So I was diagnosed with moderate PTSD when I, I was actually rescued from from that situation, if that's the word, I, it, it is the word. So there was a sheriff's deputy uh, in, in Erie County and he brought me in and I was placed under, and I still, I wish I could find this man, but he, Bill, a man named Bill Catalano became my case officer and he really knew what he was doing. He, he knew how to talk to me. He understood all the nuances of somebody who was a victim. And, and, and I was, of course, you become a little bit hardened, jaded, protective and defensive, trying to manage certain things, distrustful. There were attachment issues and I wanted my freedom. So now I've been remanded to the Huron County Juvenile Justice System where I'm placed in a group home above the caseworker offices. So I am placed above the Huron County offices in a room that has bars on the windows and you know and it's it's co-ed but the boys were on one side the girls were on the other and i met people and i met one young man who suffered the same he he suffered abuse at the hands of a camp counselor and he was mute and he wouldn't talk and and he was younger than i was so he was about 12 i was 16 and I remember we'd be assigned chores and our chore that week was to clean the bathrooms. And so I started having a, cause I was a smart ass. I started having a conversation. He wouldn't talk. So I just pretended as he, that he was talking. I'd say, yeah, I'm doing really good today. Oh, that's great that you're doing so well. And, the, and I saw this little smile breaking out and, and finally he begins talking with me and we get assigned more and more. And I, and I know it's because the caseworker knew that, the kid was talking with me and he finally, he talked, he cracked, he just lost it. And then I held him and then, you know, they, the house mom, they called her house mom at the time and she came in and the, and they called the caseworker and he finally had the courage. He was just so embarrassed. He, he felt so much shame and guilt, like he'd done something wrong. And, and that's where I kind of, came out swinging, if you will. And I, that was probably the moment where I found some confidence and, and thought, you know, you son of a bitch, not with him, but with his, his molester. And, and he actually had the courage to testify and that counselor went to prison and yeah, which is also, as you are well aware, doesn't always happen. And as we, we saw with Jeffrey Epstein and all of the people who partook of young girls who are now ducking and covering their asses. All fun and games, that was okay. Well, and what you talked about a little bit earlier, being nine years old and being told by your babysitter never to say anything or he would hurt you and nobody would believe you and all these kinds of things. There are so many children at risk in those situations and they carry this for such a long time. As you said, you carried it for decades before you found an opportunity or the courage and or to disclose this and to unburden yourself. And a lot of people think it's their fault. Well, what happened with me was I had been sent to a different school 
and I had a wonderful English teacher and her name was Marilyn Sands and and English was my favorite class and I, I loved her. I still love her. And she sensed, she had the wherewithal to sense something was up with me. She recognized it. And she, I remember I just, a song played, I, we would study music and she would play music and we'd dissect music. And then we'd learn about, you know, the 1960s and what happened then and, and fight for our freedom and things like that. So I fell apart for a, a, a song. There was a song that was played and I think it was come in from the rain and I lost it. And um, she very gently took me out into the hallway and said, yeah, I'm here, what's going on? And it'll be okay. And I, and I was out of harm's way. It was kind of this relief, this late affect relief I was feeling. And I, I just spilled the beans. I just blah, blah. You know? So she contacts, you know, the caseworker and we, and we, we worked through that. There wasn't enough in my situation. It was just like a, uh, well, it wasn't just like a Jeffrey Epstein situation, but it was one of those, it, it was in the fact that there, they didn't feel, law enforcement didn't feel that there was enough evidence to pursue and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was probably willing because I did go with the guy and, you know, we don't even do that anymore. We don't do that anymore. But back then it was kind of like, well, you know, she's 16 and she did go with the guy. So she probably wanted it. And, and that's how they, and that's how they viewed it. And not, not just law enforcement officers, but even female NGOs viewed it. If they were Christian, they viewed it that way. Well, you know, you get what you ask for. And, you know, and it, it, so I'm really happy to say that we've come a long way in terms of how we deal with victims now. And for that, I'm really happy, but, but I did have wonderful people that really built this nest around me after that and said things to me I'd never heard before, such as, you're really smart, you could attend college. And, you know, I'd never heard, you know, that, that positive feedback. Mostly I was ignored or it was either being ignored or neglected or being abused. So though that, that was my frame of reference. Wow. It's hard enough being a kid living in a stable home with two parents because you go to school and, and there's going to be bullies and, and you're, you're going to experience some difficult times. But for a young girl who is taken from one foster place to another and experiencing the bullying that you did in school, and I would imagine, I'm just guessing, was were they girls who bullied you or... Uh, course they were the boys really didn't get involved or say much of anything and sometimes it's it's the ladies that can be the worst <laughs> so well how did you cope with that like what can you tell young people who may be listening right now who would be victims to bullying what could you tell them that might help them in their current circumstances what should they do don't try to be a survivor become a thriver <laughs> become a thriver and I'll tell you my for me it was I don't want a trafficker or a perpetrator or an abuser to have control over me and the rest of my life by being a victim by playing a victim right. and the moment that I can meet with success 
educate myself or do whatever it takes is the moment they have less control. Right. And, and that's how I try to live every day. The other thing I would say is surround yourself by people that are going to help make you better. And I don't mean just better. I do mean better from an emotional standpoint, but I mean winners and, and people that are really making the most of their lives. So in, in, you know, and I talk to young ladies quite a bit and I've, I've mentored and I've taught and, and, you know, I explained to them education is boring as it sounds, it's your way out. Otherwise you wind up pregnant, you wind up in abject poverty, you, or as a single mom, you can, that can happen. And it's very difficult to, to climb up from that. So it, you know, all the steps that we say sounds so boring, but it is your key out. It, there's nothing better than having emotional, physical, and financial independence. There is no better feeling, but you've got to take the steps to do it. It usually doesn't come to us through a lottery ticket for most of us, very few. So, yeah, and I agree with you. We are really responsible for kind of rescuing ourselves sometimes with the mm -hmm. help. Uh, and guidance of other people. And you had that, that teacher that you uh, spoke of. Wow, what a remarkable woman she was. Yeah. And God bless those kind of teachers that see something and do something about it. We need more people like that. What you're saying too, about being not only a survivor, I call them super survivors, and you call them thrivers, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, we are the company we keep. If we're ba with bad company, let's get the heck out of away from that bad company. Let's surround ourselves with people who are empowering and wonderful people. And, and that is something that we need to do for ourselves. Oftentimes, nobody's going to do it for you. They're not going to place you certain, at certain places. You need to take the steps to get there. Right. And, and you did that. And you know quite a bit too about human trafficking and you are doing something about human trafficking right now and, and I'd love for you to get into that. I was a police officer. I worked in sexual assault and child abuse unit and I know a little bit about that stuff but when it comes to human trafficking I've got to say that I am not that educated on it and I think it's a topic that really needs to be discussed today as does the sex trade because we are in, in a time right now where people are very vulnerable and there is a risk out there for so many young people to mm -hmm. either be abused or groomed or, or just to fall into the sex industry. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So I took a very um, unconventional path. I became a dancer when I, I worked for minimum wage and I readily discovered that it's very difficult in the U.S. to survive on minimum wage, especially if you had a child, which I, which I did. So um, I found my way into a club. Now, a lot of people would say, oh, that's so terrible. But for me, it was a stepping stone and not a tombstone. So I danced and, and I danced at, at that time, probably some pretty innocuous places because there were no, you know, back rooms or anything like that. It wasn't like that. I worked on my feet, not my back. Let's put it that way. And as I progressed from dancing in a club, I actually became the co-owner of a club and forged the first penthouse agreement with Bob Duccione, the first penthouse licensing agreement. 
So I left New York two months after 9-11 with that licensing agreement in place and we co-own the club. But one of the things that I saw, there were a couple of things I saw. Back then, and you're going back into the um, early 2000s, a lot of clubs did not allow unescorted women to come in. And I thought, why? We don't have anything to hide here. We're not taking guys in back rooms. And, 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 and I'm going to be very frank here. If you offer a man a happy ending in a strip club, he's not buying drinks and he's not buying food and he's not buying dances and he's not buying, he's not buying anything. He's leaving. So it doesn't, it doesn't behoove me as a club owner to do that, to, to allow that to take place. Plus these clubs cost millions of dollars. If they're nice clubs, they cost millions of dollars to put into place. So you don't want to risk that. You're not going to risk your licenses, your liquor license, all those things. You just won't. Now, I'm not saying that clubs like that don't exist because they do. And so what we discovered was a lot of legislation started to be passed that would say, oh, to prevent human trafficking, all women in strip clubs now must stand six feet away from a guy, or we're going to fine them a thousand dollars for each infraction. And then we're going to put them in jail for 30 days and charge them with a first degree misdemeanor. I don't know how that helps a human trafficking victim. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm like, you're ripping the economic rug out from underneath them and you're victim. If you think they're victims, you're going to re-victimize them. This makes no sense to me. So I didn't really know what human trafficking was. And I decided I needed to learn. And, and then I found out about force, fraud, and coercion. Those are the three big terms that you need to remember with human trafficking, force, fraud, coercion. So in the year 2000, Bill Clinton signed the Trafficking Victim Protection Act, which has been re-anteed up in the U.S. government every four years or so. They, they re-ante it and they can, add, they can add stuff to it or take away or sunset stuff. So as I learned about human trafficking, I was like, we're not doing that in clubs. Is somebody else doing this in clubs? I was really confused. I'm like, I don't coerce these girls. I don't grab them by the hair. I don't drag them into a club, throw them up on stage. And, and when I asked around other club owners, they're like, we don't do that. And, and I said, well, then what is going on? And so I went to the law enforcement agencies. I went to NGOs and I said, would you say that the strip club industry are, is it a purveyor for sex trafficking? Absolutely. Positively, without a doubt. Yes, yes, yes. And I thought, wow, where, where is this happening? Well, they really couldn't give me exactly where. I, I had some anecdotal stuff. Well, you know, there was a 13-year-old girl in a club over here. Well, I said, okay, let's look into that. So as I looked into it, I said, wow, okay, so we've got some managers in a few places that are not checking IDs or they're not appropriately checking IDs and they're letting these underage girls slip through. Is that trafficking? Well, it turned out that it was not, and I'm going to condense this, it wasn't really the clubs. It was people that would bring in people, you know, young ladies, and they weren't doing their due diligence. So we said, hmm, we need to start a program. So we started a program called Coast. And I built that. And I ended up, I did end up going to college, by the way. So I actually graduated summa cum laude from Ursuline College. And then I went on to George Washington University and earned a master's degree 
from the Graduate School of Political Management, and I was their co-valedictorian out of 400 students. And graduate. So, yeah, and you're talking about a young lady who graduated high school with a 2.0 GPA. So if I can do it, I know there are other young people out there that can do it too. And, and uh, so anyway, I put together this program called Coast with the help of a law enforcement officer who wasn't my husband. And, and we started asking the FBI, do you want to, we want to train people in the industry to recognize and report human tra incidences of suspected human trafficking. And the FBI was like, absolutely not go away. <laughs> so, and I thought, well, you're telling us that we're the problem. And we're saying to you, we'll fling open our doors, come on in. And, and they're saying, uh, uh, we are not having any kumbaya moments with you go away. <laughs> so, so it was, so I was really kind of discouraged. And, um, and then I had Homeland Security investigations, we got a call, we there was a lawyer we were working with. And they said, you need to be over at DHS headquarters. Uh, the Honorable Alice Hill wants to hear your presentation. And at the time, she was general counsel for Janet Napolitano. So I go there and a snowstorm hits. And we were told, you're going to have five minutes with her or 15 or whatever it was. It was a very short window. And we ended up in a room with her for 90 minutes because nobody could go anywhere because a blizzard broke out. And it was like, Ooh. praise God. <laughs> so, so uh, she was very silent when we finished our presentation. And then she said, and I thought, oh, she, she doesn't like it. And, and she finally said, I love it. You give her what she needs to make this program happen. So we, we took baby steps and we did some test runs and it was never a pass for the strip club industry. And we had some really remarkable club owners step up and say, you know what, bring this to my club. I don't want this in my club. And, you know, and the thing that everyone forgets is people in the industry are not some other than they're not subhuman, although we do tend to dehumanize them. They're not, they're people and they have kids and they have moms and dads and, and brothers and sisters and nieces. And they don't want to see that happen to any, any kid or anybody. So we started teaching them the indicators we started launching legislation where it was mandatory to hang anti-human trafficking posters in adult clubs. And then we started, we did the classes and, and then we started passing legislation or supporting legislation if we didn't write it ourselves, which made age verification mandatory in strip clubs, but not only mandatory, they had to take a photo and they had to keep everything on file three years post work history and open to law enforcement for inspection at any time. And if you're running a good club, you do that. You don't have any issue with that. So um, we have received tips. We have had success stories, which I think is great because I don't want to see even one victim in a club and that, and we talked earlier before this podcast about, you know, can we end human trafficking? And we both agreed, probably not. But what we can do is work in the areas we know to minimize its impact. And that's what we've tried to do. So now that Coast is up, I've had NGOs who don't like the program and, other, and, then, and then they wanted the program. Then they're like, well, give it to us, we'll do it. And it's like, why is so you're gonna get so you get grants for millions of dollars and you fly first class and you do all this and we do it for free. So we don't take any money to do it. So we run it, not even on donations. I just make it happen with my other work and make it happen. So, and the club owners are great about 
getting a neutral spot to host the classes. So usually it's a hotel conference room. And, and obviously we haven't done this because of COVID. We can't get, and we bring the federal agents in. So Angelina does not uh, train people and BA does not train people, but the, um, but the um, federal agents do. So they conduct the training. It takes about two hours. And then the, um, and it's very interactive. Uh, and then I just mediate. So, and, and the agents have told me to, and we have now since then worked with the FBI, state police, you know, everyone really jumped on and it was very positive. And, and the other thing I, I like to do with Coast is go below the radar because we don't want kumbaya moments. I don't expect President Trump to have me up at the White House to put a medal around my neck. It's not going to happen. And yeah, I, I did get nominated as a, it was a director award uh, for service to the, to, for meeting White House mandates and congressional mandates in the fight against human trafficking in 2015. I was a director's award nominee um, for, it was something under the blue campaign. So I didn't get it and I was okay with that. And, and I think there are tons of people out there, I'll, you know, and I tell NGOs, you want to run coast? You can take, a, you can do the class. I'm fine with that, but I, you have to know people in this industry and I don't want you being judgmental and I don't want you getting on a soapbox with them. And I don't want you making them feel bad um, because they're already under enough scrutiny and they, and they too feel, you know, they go through a lot uh, feeling that they're not accepted. They're marginalized. So the coast has been really positive and they, and I have people in the industry all the time tell me, wow, I feel so, I feel like those federal agents really listened to me and I felt like a human being. And I have the federal agents say, gosh, these are really nice people. And, and I said, what'd you expect? And they said, not this. <laughs> so, oh. I just want to say what an inspiring story and what a great accomplishment that you have, have done that is helping so many people out there. So congratulations. Oh, this is where people make a difference in other people's worlds. And what you've done is absolutely remarkable. One term that you've used a couple of times that I'm not familiar with, and perhaps some of my listeners aren't, is NGOs. What does that stand for? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, NGOs are non-governmental agencies or not nonprofits like um, Catholic charities or something like that, that they, they actually do work. So, and a lot of, what a lot of people also don't realize is these poor people who do work so hard, they do some noble work, but they have to compete against each other. So the way our government is set up in some sectors where agencies are offering grants, they have to compete for those grants. So one of the things they have to do is they have to sign a piece of paper saying that they will not make a distinction between sex work, which is where stripping falls under, and sex trafficking, which to me is egregious because it causes them to have to compete against each other and it does a disservice to real victims. So I don't have any issue if a grown, well, it's redundant to say grown woman, but if a woman wants to get up on stage, if she makes that decision consciously herself, I, I got no problem with that. That's not my ballywick. It's not my business. But if a woman is for, used or forced to do that, now I got a problem and I want to help. And it's the same way with a kid. You know, it's called adult entertainment for a reason. It's not for kids. And I want those kids out of clubs. I don't want them in clubs. And the owners don't want them either because that too, it's just like the happy ending scenario I described earlier. You, you know, that, that'll get you that'll get you prison time fines and you'll be out of business real quick. 
Right. So, and it's just not what we want. I mean, it's not what anybody yeah. wants. Uh, nobody wants to take, at least we do not want anybody to be harmed and, and young people can fall into this. What you said about human trafficking, force, fraud, and coercion. Where is human trafficking or this type of thing going on? Where is it typically, if not as much because I would have thought that uh, the adult entertainment clubs would have been one spot for it. And you've, you've really clarified a lot for me. And you make a lot of sense. My goodness, a business wants to remain in business and they don't want to hurt anybody. And they are people just like us. So where are the, uh, the victims being trafficked through? How? I am so happy you asked me that question. And most interviewers don't. So I laud you for that. So one of the things I also do, so I have a consulting business in DC and we do a lot of data analytics and research um, and consulting for uh, military, federal agencies and private contractors. And in looking at the data, so what I did was aggregate sex trafficking data through what's called the Uniform Crime Reporting System that the FBI uses. So back in 2013, they started compiling sex trafficking statistics from various areas uh, based on you know, NGO data, academic data, their own crime reports and convictions and things like that. So as I aggregated all this data out through the years, I realized, oh my gosh, this, and I wrote a paper on it called Show Us Your Data, which was pretty funny. And, and I heard it made its way to the State Department. But in Show Us Your Data, what I discovered by running that, their own data, the government's own data is sex trafficking with in strip clubs is less than 1% of the U.S. problem, and that they have to lump illicit cantinas, other venues, and bars in with strip clubs, and then and just to get to 1%. So I was like, and all the NGOs are going out going, strip clubs, strip clubs are the problem to get their grant money. And I'm like, this is not helping real victims and trafficking. So as, and I looked at the data and we did a graph and I said, did I run this wrong? And, and I kept looking and it showed hotels. Hotels were the number one purveyors for sex trafficking. And what happens in a hotel is usually it's late at night. The front desk person takes a kickback is what we've discovered or not, or they, or they turn a blind eye and these young People, the guy will come in with a load of cash, lay it down, and they've got a room for a week or whatever. And he puts, you know, like a, I've, these are some of the cases that have now been closed um, that the agents had worked on, but they put, you know, like, like one pimp, if you will, will take three girls, three or four girls, and he'll just put them in rooms or they'll share a room or whatever. And they leave them in there. He pays for the week or what, two weeks or a month. And they'll leave her in there with no clothes so she can't leave. And drugs, pills usually, because they're easy to hide and, and you can get a, a young lady addicted to an opioid. And, and then they can't leave and they're high and you got, you know, 40, 50 guys a day in some cases going into that room. So, and, you know, and the hotels weren't reporting that because it was bad PR. Now, I have to give credit to Marriott because the Marriott and I'll, I'll stay at Marriott's I, because they actually were the, one of the first hotel chains to say, you know what, we're training everyone and we're going to have a zero tolerance for this. So I laud them for that. 
That is remarkable. And what a sad story. Again, we're talking about the pimps. We're talking about what you mentioned, force, fraud, coercion, control, and Mm -hmm. there is no choice. Whether they were groomed to in this situation or whatever, it is a very, very sad statement to, to find any human being being taken advantage of that way. Since COVID-19 has really prevented a lot of people from going to hotels, have you become aware of what is happening in that industry? Or is this something that is, you, you dial a number, whatever? So a lot of the meetups or whatever will take place. So they'll use apps. In fact, and I don't know the name of this app there. There's one app that looks like a calculator. So if I were a parent and I went into this app, I would, on my kid's phone, I would see a calculator and, and I wouldn't know that that was actually an app. Um, They'll do Snapchat. They'll do. So, you know, I know you've heard about the deep web and, you know, the onion router and all that. So, you know, a lot of these, um, more savvy, especially the criminal rings will use the deep web because it's encrypted. You can't trace it. Although federal law enforcement has gotten very good with, with figuring all that out, but, um, but that's what they'll tend to use. And it'll come up and down so uh, fast, Paul, that you can't, it's hard for them to keep track of it. So one of the things that we had in the U S was a law called FOSTA and SESTA and you know, the law enforcement really lauded it because it would have given them the opportunity to grab these IPs where they, where this content was coming through and, and what they would matter. And they could trace the IP back and find out who's doing this child. They call it child porn. I don't like that word, uh, child sexual abuse. So they would find out, um, you know, where they are, and then they could build a case from that. But FOSTA and SESTA, I think that the intent, the original intent of the law, the way law enforcement wanted it was so noble, but politicians got hold of it and they ruined it. And, and they, they, you know, and they were so zealous that it was like, take it all down, take it. And then they kind of worked from that. It's sinful. And I, I always cringe when it goes to that, not because I support the, the trafficking part. I don't. But what happened was Boston SESTA passed in the U.S. and all these sites got taken down. And I know that in one instance, there was an a, a federal agency that lost track of 44 victims on active cases and oh. they were never able to find them again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and then and then the NGOs come out and go, woohoo, we had success. Look, human trafficking's down 90 percent. That's bullshit. It's not down 90%. You have just driven all those victims underground. And now you're strutting around like roosters, congratulating yourselves uh, when you should be ashamed. And, and you've driven them underground. It all because they didn't want to see a stripper up there, you know, plying her trade as a, as a, with consent as an adult. So we have to be very careful of that and find the, the balance. And, and that's the part when, when laws are overzealous, and, and they infringe on somebody else's rights, I have an issue with that. But I also understand that there are people out there, particularly criminal rings who have technological savvy, they'll take advantage of that. So somewhere we have to find you know, a balance. So the intent was good, the follow through really sucked because huh. I, I, we lost those victims. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, we don't wanna lose any of the victims. BA, what would you, 
would you tell parents or caregivers to be on the lookout if their child is at risk or even I don't know if you are familiar with luring and, and you probably have, of course, some knowledge on luring. What, whether a child is actually under the control of a pimp or is being lured, what would you kind of guidance would you give parents and caregivers? I think the number one thing that any parent can do and do it for as long as possible is keep your child off of social media. Do not let them have any account. If they need to be on the computer for schoolwork or something like that, let them use yours. Know their history. Use the blockers if they absolutely have to be on that account. But what has been happening to our youth is we have a society now that almost every, and I'm guilty of it too, uh, almost every one of us carries around what I call a pocket casino. And we can pull it out at any time and play slots. And what I mean by that is we scroll, we scroll, we scroll, we scroll, we hit, we hit, we hit, we hit. And, you know, and we click through, click, click, click. And it's like playing a slot machine or it's being a rat in a, in a pellet maze. And the number one way that um, traffickers usually get to victims is through social media content. So parents aren't up usually on apps like and I'm probably dating myself by saying kick because I don't even know if they use it anymore, but you know, kick, Snapchat, Facebook, uh, in, in some instances, if a young lady lets, and I'll give you an example of one, I'll give you an example of one where the young lady had a Facebook account and she's posting these very selfies because that's what she's seeing all over social media though, you know, and she posts all these selfies and, and she gets in a fight with her mom. And, you know, and all of a sudden this guy, and she's got a public profile, which she should never have a public profile as a 12 year old. And the the guy just goes in, Hey, like he's a kid and he's not a kid. And I see you got in a fight with your mom. You know, she just doesn't understand you. Boom. The grooming has started. Hey, why don't you meet me at the mall? I'm going to buy you a purse. I'm going to get you a purse just to, cause you're just really cool. And and, you know, I get it. Your, your mom's a bitch. And, and, you know, and this is the stuff they'll do. And then the girl finds her ride to the mall. Mom even may drop her off. Mm-hmm. And she goes into the mall and she meets the guy and mom doesn't find her again. Or, you know, and then, or we've had cases where kids have actually been going to school, but they were trafficked at night. So they would climb out their window and they would go with their trafficker and do their deeds and come back. And they were just falling apart. One, they weren't sleeping. Two, they were being abused. I mean, they had a whole, um, there were a whole host of variables going on there and parents, and these are not abject poverty homes. In this instance, we had suburban homes and, and, you know, two parent families who had no idea what the hell was going on. And, and, and what had happened was these kids had gone to a party and there, and they were given drugs and alcohol, and then they were videotaped in compromising positions. And they were told, we will tell your parents if you don't start sneaking out and doing X, Y, and Z for us. Right. So, and it sounds crazy, but it happens. Oh, yeah. And I've heard uh, some stories and spoken to some people who have said the same. You know, there are different ploys that people will use that these uh, these men will use to control. Uh, and and it's not only men that are uh, the pimps as well. And I'm sure you're uh, you have a lot to say about that. A lot of times, uh, the pimps are women. Right. Yeah. So usually, uh, a woman 
she usually is a was a victim herself and and that's always a hard one too because once she ages out so before she becomes an adult she's a victim no matter what under the the trafficking victim protection act in the us so once she ages out and she's still committing this activity, now she's an adult, she's no longer a victim, she could be a criminal. And she usually becomes the most trusted person for a pimp and they call them bottom girls. So, so the bottom girl is in charge of, in some cases, not all, but generally speaking, in charge of recruiting or finding more women uh, for the pimp and managing the money. And she's earned that level of trust and she's very attached to her pimp. And she wants to keep that number one position because she no longer, she doesn't get beaten as much or if he's a, what they call a gorilla pimp. So there's a whole host of intrinsic factors that go on. It, it's just a, it's a horrible cycle, but yes. So a female definitely can be, and in fact, when they do, and there were a couple of instances in strip clubs, which we were able to catch because the owners and the managers made the call to the federal agents. But this one woman in Colorado brought in a young lady and at a, to a club and they let them, they called up to management. He was in the office and he had cameras in the lobby and they, they weren't allowed to go any further than the lobby, which was shut off from the club. And he looked at the girl and he looked at the woman and he thought, well, that's funny. And he had just been to one of our classes and he said, that's funny. He said, they're not talking to each other. And I would think that oh, a young lady about to audition in my club who's going to take off her top or clothes would be a little nervous and maybe more closer, closer to the woman saying, you think they're going to hire me? I'm a little nervous, whatever. There was none of that going on. They just went they were standing on opposite ends of the lobby, not talking to each other and not facing each other. So he comes down and the older woman does all the talking. That's an indicator. The older woman has the girl's documentation, her license and all of her documentation. That's another indicator. Um, they're not making eye contact. She's doing all the talking. So he, he does a very smart thing. He says, I'm going to have to take her up here. She's going to have to fill out paperwork, but I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait here. And he, 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 we always tell him, don't be a vigilante and don't, you know, obviously don't call Homeland Security in front of the girl and frighten her or she'll, she'll tell the woman or whatever. So he gets her picture, gets her photograph and asks her, why do you want to do this? And she says, I don't, she's making me. She actually says that. And he's like, I want to help. And, you know, so he go he says, he goes downstairs and he tells the woman, you know, I don't have a place for her on the schedule. And she had a legitimate looking ID. She, she came across as an adult. And he said, I don't have a, I, I don't have room on the schedule. Can you bring her back tomorrow night? And it's seven o'clock. If you can be here at seven o'clock tomorrow, she's got a job. So the woman was like, oh yeah, no problem. Sure. Blah, blah, blah. So they call the agents and the federal agents find out that this is a missing child who's 16 years old. So they rescued her. And yeah. And then we had, we've had similar situations like that where it's not the club. It's somebody trying to use the club as a conduit for that crime. So that's what we train people to do. Don't let 
you know, COAST is a program, do not let your club be used as a conduit for this crime. And they've pr done a pretty decent job with that. What a tremendous story of how effective what you're doing and what COAST is doing uh, is turning out. You're like you are helping so many people out there and that's, that's wonderful. And what a great story. He picked up on, on all the signs and had been to one of your classes. And wow, you know, I love that kind of stuff. Another thing I want to ask you, because having been a cop, uh, and, and a lot of cops out there, uniform cops, detectors or whatever, they're going to run into someone that they suspect is perhaps under, they're under the control of a pimp. I'm sure that some pimps are watching their girls uh, closely. And, mm -hmm. and there is that, that hesitation on the part of the victim to speak to the police. If a police officer or when a police officer suspects that, how can he approach the topic with the victim without spooking her or putting her in danger? Because I'm sure if he, he pulls around, he stops his cruiser and starts talking to her and the pimp's down the street watching this, she's going to be harmed. She'll freak, she'll walk away or whatever. She, yeah, they don't. So one thing I've, it, law enforcement has come a long way in dealing with human trafficking, recognizing it, training their officers. And a lot of police departments in the U.S. now have human trafficking units, which are great. And a lot of the law enforcement officers also go to human, they attend human trafficking trainings, just like we do coast, they do it for law enforcement. And they have a whole series and, you know, and there's trade craft, which you know, that you don't give away all your, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't give away all your your tactics and secrets or whatever, but they do have these phenomenal ways of talking with people and just asking them the indicator questions. Like HSI has a little card and it's got like 10 questions on it that they usually ask. And they're, they're like, oh, where's your ID? You know, and it, it's not accusatory. They're very nice. And they'll, you know, and there's, a, there's a difference between one, where's your ID? And hey, you know, oh, what happened to your ID? And, you know, and giving them a, an opportunity to speak and listening for those indicators. And, and they've all been read to tell a story. So they've all, they've all been groomed to tell a story and stick to that story no matter what. And I would tell law enforcement officers, and they already know this, because I've heard them say it, they'll go, I don't want to work with her because she, she ran away three times and, and, and she doesn't tell the truth. She always lies to me. And it's like, of course she lies to you. She's scared been abused she's probably got ptsd and stockholm syndrome right. yes she's going to lie to you she doesn't quite understand what's happening to her if they're a kid all bets are off if they're if they're under the age of 18 in the u.s they can't consent so the, right. the cop can basically go in and they've got they've got a lot more leeway when it's an adult victim it's a little harder because if she says and this is what they typically will say well that's my daddy or you know, they call their boy their boyfriend, their trafficker, they call them their boyfriend or their daddy, or they'll have, they'll be branded with a tattoo. One guy actually used a barcode on the back of his oh, victim's necks. No. So yeah, yeah. So they have ways of recognizing it. They do. And, and they have way, they have training, you know, not all agencies, but, but a lot of the bigger and the good agencies do have specialized units and the cops are taught how to ask the questions by those units and then they can make reports too you know they you know i'm sure you've made intelligence reports absolutely yeah, yeah. 
and, and it's very similar here in Canada th to have specialized groups to deal with this. I could talk to you all night. <laughs> You're such an <laughs> interesting individual, but I don't want to take all your night. I just want to say, as we close off, how impressed I am by the work that you do and by how you managed to get through very difficult times in your life uh, where you were not supported and where you became more than a survivor. You, you, you went out and you did something about it. And that's such a, an inspirational story. And thank you for everything that you're doing. This is wonderful. Now, B.A. Crisp. I'm going to ask you about that because that ain't your name. You are an author. I am yeah, an author. It is. It's your, it's your, uh, your pen name, right? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Your book is Redbird. Yes. And tell us a little bit about your book and where people can get your book, because I know they're going to be inspired to read more about you. Okay. So Redbird is loosely, it's a very loosely based fictionalized uh, version of my life. Um, so it's about a foster kid and she's a human trafficking victim but she winds up going, uh, she winds up being um, remanded to a facility, which it's with other foster kids. And it's actually an industrialized military intelligence complex facility. And I'm not going to give away too much there. And some wild things happen to her. And, you know, and she discovers things about herself and she has a mentor. And, and, and at first she, they don't get along. They butt heads. You know, he's a, he's a former colonel and she's, just not having it, and but he's he's gonna kick her ass so into shape. Um, but it's it's a pretty good story. So it, you can get it at on Amazon. It's Redbird by B A Crisp. You can go through a link at bacrisp.com. Uh, it's also available at Barnes and Noble, uh, Dy Dynamox or Dymox in Australia, Blackwells in the UK. So a few places, and it is a series uh, called the Quanta Chronicles series, and uh, book two is almost ready. All so. right. Well, you know what? I'm ordering a copy. That's it's going to be a great read. Once again, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, and for sharing something that a lot of people are not aware of what's going on out there when it comes to human trafficking, when it comes to uh, abuse and a number of other issues. And you have enlightened many of us and shared some information that is creating awareness. And I applaud you again on all the wonderful work that you are doing and that you have done. And on the many people that I'm certain that you have helped and the programs that you have put into place, uh, just uh, a remarkable story and accomplishment. So BA, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me on your show. It was really an honor. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another insightful episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave your comments. For more information, check out our website at www.inspireus.ca. Remember, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's how we respond to what happens to us that does. Stay strong and resilient. 